Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Shabnam Holiday. Shabnam is Associate Professor in International Relations in the School of Society and Culture at the University of Plymouth. She's written some fascinating work on Iran and the international relations of the region, including with our very own Edward Wasnich. Shabnam, I'm delighted to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for agreeing to do it and for joining me today. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, it's really exciting. Yeah, um, <laughs> I've been trying to convince you to do this for a long time now, and I'm I'm glad that perseverance has has um, paid off. And here we are. Here so, we are. Yeah, thank you so much. So, uh, I always start the the conversation with with this this same question, which is, what got you interested in the the, the politics of of Iran, and what got you interested in the things that you do more broadly, please. Yeah, sure. I think um, positionality makes a it plays a really important role. Um, I um, was born in Iran, and then we left in 1979 because um, we were UK citizens. And then we went on to live in Syria. So I spent my childhood in Syria in the 1980s, and followed by that in Cairo, um, in Egypt. And I think during that period of the 1980s, as a child, it's very form. Um, Formative. You are experiencing, I remember the Lebanese civil war across the border. I obviously remember um, Syrian politics. I was aw- very aware of what was going on around me. So when it came to choosing university, I wanted to do Arabic and Islamic studies so I could get back to the region, basically, because we, okay. we were then living in the UK. Yeah. Okay, so all sense. that environment, yeah, was why. I then later came back to do this as a career. And then somewhere in the midst of all of that moving around, you found yourself in God's own country. Yes. In Yorkshire. Yes. In Yorkshire. Well, yes, because I am of Yorkshire descent. So <laughs> I am both of Iranian and Yorkshire descent. Um, yes. And, you know, now I live in Devon, but I often wish that perhaps one day I could return to Yorkshire. Definitely. <laughs> Sorry, I, I had to get it in there as a proud Yorkshire. Yeah, no, it's great. It would be remiss. Absolutely. It would be remiss not to. So, spending time in in Cairo and in Syria during the eighties must have been a fascinating place to be. I mean, what are some of your memories from that time? And is there something that that really triggered your interest in politics? Um, I remember being very aware that. Um, people were, have, were, were either being forced to live somewhere or being forced to move somewhere, I think, and also very um, transient environment. I mean, I had a wonderful time as a child. Um, Damascus was, you know, fantastic for me as a child in, mm-hmm. that, in that time. But I was also aware that the relationship between um, the Assad, you know, President Assad and um, what we now refer to as Islamists was a difficult one. Um, I remember, I mean, not sometime, I can't remember exactly which year, and um, the Air Force building across the road from my school was blown up. Um, and that obviously, you know, was quite a, a shock as a child, but also quite normal because I grew up in an environment where there were always stories like this about people who had either left Iran or were couldn't go to Lebanon or were in Syria. Um, and then later on in Egypt, we had um, moving on. So I did, I did Arabic at university, 
and spent my second year, I went back to Egypt. And that was the beginning of um, the time when they were starting to have um, attacks by Islamist groups. And so you sort of start thinking, well, why is all this happening? Why do these um, dynamics happen? Why is there a clash between, for example, Assad and Islamist groups? Or why are Islamist groups? Um, I mean, obviously, it was Muslim Brotherhood and Islamic Jihad. I learned that much later, but I didn't know those things at that time. Um, trying to understand why these groups exist and why they're popular, why they become unpopular, um, and that sort of dynamic. Fascinating. So <sighs> where did you go for your, your degree then? I went to Exeter, went to University Exeter. of Exeter, okay. yeah. I guessed yeah. from the title of your, your degree, but... Um, Thought I should clarify. Yeah. So then yeah. you, you had some time back in Egypt. And at that point, did you know that you wanted to carry on with the PhD? Or was this just a sort of... Absolutely not. <laughs> I couldn't <laughs> okay. run further away. <laughs> so I did my degree. Um, and then afterwards, I was like, I, I, I just do not want to do any more studying. Um, and I got a job with the British Council in Doha, in Atash. Um, and promoting British education mm-hmm. um, locally. And that was a very interesting period because this is the days before Al Jazeera or Al Jazeera was just being set up. It was the days before Qatar Airways or Qatar Airways was set up, I think, while I was there. Wow. So, yeah, it's before um, Doha or Qatar became, you know, an important regional um, actor. Um, and I learned a lot. Well, I mean, I learned a lot about the oil and gas industry, um, and it was a very different experience being there to the experience I had with my family, you know, in Syria and Egypt. So I felt like it was a quite a eye opener, and I got to travel to Dubai and Abu Dhabi, and I learned a lot more about the um, Arab Gulf states, which of course are Iran's neighbours because you know um, they're very close, and also. Meeting Iranians, um, I'd never never had much access to a lot of Iranians growing up, other than family. So meeting Iranians in that environment was quite influential as well. Yeah, I bet. I bet. <laughs> so perhaps subconsciously at this point, you're developing your interest in in Iran and and its relations, whether whether consciously or subconsciously, but then you don't go straight into your your further studies, your graduate studies, do you? No. So, um, so one other thing that kind of kept, one thing I was always interested in was the question of Palestine. So I, while at university, I had the fortunate opportunity to be an intern at Gaza Community Mental Health Programme in the Gaza Strip wow. in about 1994, 1995. And that was quite a um, a really important experience for me. I was translating children's stories. Um, so by that, I mean stories that they were asked to write and dreams that they were asked to write to reflect on the process of the Intifada. Mm-hmm. It was an organization that looks at mental health support run by, well, led by um, the late Yad al-Saraj. So it was a really important experience and I also saw how um, NGO that particular NGO is working with international and Israeli NGOs and also what life had an impression of what life was like in the Gaza Strip back in the 1990s this was before 
Rabin was assassinated and yeah. after yeah and after the Oslo Accords. What was that like then? I mean that must have been a very very interesting and incredibly different time to to how we're seeing things now of course. Yes, of course, very different to now. I think there was a lot of hope. Um so this was a time when um obviously Hamas had come into existence but it, uh, the uh, Gaza um, was still run by um the Palestinian Authority. Um, there was a lot of, I think, vibrancy, um, but also a lot of. While there's a lot of hope, I think it would be inaccurate to explain to suggest that everything was extremely good and positive. I think for I remember men talking about the restrictions placed on them, and also there was a time when lots of. Um, after the 1991 Gulf War, lots of Palestinians have been forced out of their homes in the Arab Gulf, from the Arab Gulf states, and were trying to, you know, live in in Gaza, which is a very, very different environment. So it was a it was a mix, but also I was very young, you know. So you're, I didn't, I wasn't looking at this from the position of an academic. I was looking at it from a young person who's interested in politics. And perhaps thinking about going into the UN or something like that. Right. Uh, meeting lots of different people and just kind of throwing myself into being a young person in Gaza. So it's a very different perspective to, you know, where I'd be now, you know, doing an, sort of with an academic um, sure. eye. Yeah, so it's very different. And getting into Gaza at that point then, how, how would one get there? How would one get into Gaza City? Um. So I was collected from um, Tel Aviv airport um, and then I was taken, it was, we must have gone through a checkpoint. I don't remember very clearly. Mm-hmm. And then I was taken and then it was, it was night time. So I didn't see very much. Um, and then I was in Gaza for, I think three or four, four months. Right. Um, but then when I left, I remember leaving, going through the air crossing. Um, and I remember at that point, because I had a little bit more experience, being quite nervous um, about that process. Um, I remember not being treated very pleasantly by what I now understand would have been IDF soldiers, but I don't think I quite appreciated that at the time. Um, and then I had a few days in Jerusalem, and I went to Dead Sea on like a package tour so with tourists. And I remember being quite surprised how nobody I spoke to really knew what Gaza was. Right. Um, and I remember that's a very clear in my mind. I remember thinking, hang on, this is just a bit weird. Yeah. Um, and I, perhaps that's why as well, because obviously I grew up in an environment where everybody knew what Gaza and the West Bank were. Um, they knew about the question of Palestine. They knew about the Arab-Israeli conflict at the time. Um, so to be in a situation where people were so close in proximity to Gaza didn't know. I mean, these aren't, you know, these are just like kids doing a tour. You know, sure. then it's a very specific environment. I, I was quite sort of taken. I remember being quite taken aback. And I think that's actually what brought me back to academia. Ultimately, I felt there was a, I, there was a role I could play. So it's not just about my work of you know, learning about Iran, but it's also about teaching. I teach Middle East politics mm-hmm. to students as part of a politics program, not as part of a um, area studies program. Sure. And often there's no experience with the Middle East. So it's about, you know, 
highlighting the complexities and the historical context for what we do now. And I think that that probably came from that process. So I eventually came back to do my master's um, about five or six years later after I graduated from university. And where did you go for that? Exeter again. Back to Exeter. So yeah. back to Exeter and then did my PhD at Exeter as well. So the PhD, despite all of these experiences in Gaza and Israel-Palestine and Syria uh, and Egypt was on Iran. And that, I assume, was because of the sort of the, the personal history that you have with, with Iran. Yeah, I think when I did my master's, I didn't expect to go on to do a PhD on Iran. I, I was expecting to do a PhD on um, on the question of Palestine and you know wider regional. But then I realized that I actually didn't know very much about Iranian politics. Right. Because I didn't grow up in Iran. Uh-huh. So it, it wasn't a natural, you know, I went and visited family, but it, did, it wasn't the environment in which I grew up. Um, and then my idea was to do a PhD on Iranian foreign policy. Mm-hmm. But then I realized I didn't, I needed to have a better understanding of um, dynamics with inside Iran. And that's how it developed into a PhD on Iranian national identity. Um, and during specifically the Khatami period, the reformist period. And who was that um, with? Who were you working with at Exeter? So I was working with um, Yusuf Shuari um, initially, mm-hmm. and then Ali Ansari and Nadia Lali. Wow, a stellar team. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that was very fortunate. And yeah, that must um, have been wonderful. It was wonderful. It was, it was good. And and you know, the whole time I was doing my PhD was also the build up to the Iraq War mm-hmm. in two thousand and three. Um, and then while I was doing my PhD was also the two thousand six um, Lebanon War. So it was a quite a um charged environment. Yeah. Um, yes. And also, this is the environment where, um, you know, people talking about war on terror is after 9 11. Um, there's a lot of discussion about Iran being the next, you know, would Iran be invaded? So that was the environment in which I did my PhD. And But it was great because I was able to, I had amazing um, fellow PhD students, um, both in the Institute of Arab and Islamic Studies and in the politics department. Mm-hmm. And we used to have amazing discussions and um, trying to, you know, get our heads around everything that was happening at the time. Amazing. Yeah, that must have been a, an intellectual smorgasbord, a real <laughs> treat for you. Um, yes. <laughs> and, I mean, the topic is is fascinating and you've done this wonderful work on it. But doing it at a time when Iran was being positioned within this axis of evil was being securitized, if we want to go down that route. That is directly at odds with the, the stuff that you were looking at, the, the Khatami broader sort of, whether we want to call it a reformist program or mm-hmm. reintegrationist program. It's very, very different to the, the lived experience of, of the present. So how was that? How did you reconcile those two sort of jarring processes, that real sort of intellectual disjuncture? I think while I was doing my my PhD, a lot of that was about immersing myself more in terms of what was happening inside Iran. But how that related to external factors in the sense that 
but not in a lot of detail. So it wasn't until later, um, after I finished my PhD, that I began to think more in terms of international relations and um, sort of Iran's position in the region. Um, because at the time I was, so the way I've always done my work is um, I primarily read Islamic Republic of Iran texts, mm-hmm. um, elite texts. So at that time I was just reading Khatami texts. Um, and then I was still reading, focusing on Khatami, even though Ahmadinejad was elected during that process. It wasn't until after my PhD I started to read Ahmadinejad um, texts and become more attuned to what was going on in the, well, not, obviously I was aware of it, but I think in terms of my writing, it didn't come into my writing and my interest much later. Um, and then that also was coupled with a real frustration of why Iran often isn't included, even though Iran is a really important geopolitical actor, you know, historically and in the present. Um, why Iran isn't being included in discussions in international relations and debates about world order and debates about rogue state. I mean, it's always as a rogue state, but there's not much, there hasn't been much about the complexity. In, in and, I'm, and I'm not talking about, I'm talking specifically in IR context, like mm-hmm. IR journals. So obviously there's a huge amount of literature outside of international relations. But when I think about what my students learn, they focus on the IR text because that's what they're given. Um, and then Iran doesn't feature very much in those days um, in that literature. And it's only in the last 10 years or so that we're getting more, you know, with the work of, um, you know, Edward Wasnage, but also others that is becoming, you know, we get more of Iran in actual journals and IR conferences mm-hmm. um, where it becomes part of the debate. So that was a lot of the frustration. So then I kind of had a sort of plan of like, right, I'm going to get my, get Iran into IR debate. <laughs> <laughs> and that's been sort of primarily my, you know, aim in terms of where I try and get my work published. Well, I was going to say your, your track record of publications are broadly in IR journals rather than sort of specific area studies journals, aside from... Um, the British Journal of Middle East Studies, of course, yeah, and maybe Third World Quarterly, although that's yeah a different type, perhaps. But you've yeah. published predominantly in in the IR section of of scholarship, yeah, which is fascinating because I think a number of the guests that I've had on this podcast have expressed similar types of frustrations, disciplinary frustrations, that the empirical work that they do has been neglected from the mainstream IR scholarship um, but then some of the empirical work that they do lacks or the, the empirical work that they are contributing to in terms of broader debates lacks mm. the intellectual rigor of some of the IR scholarship so find themselves caught between two different ways of, of looking at sets of issues. Yeah, and I've had a real, it's, it's been a battle. I mean, there's no doubt it hasn't been easy. I mean, the number of rejections I've had and the reasons for rejections yeah. have been, you know, quite shocking. So the piece that I've just, uh, that was published last year in International Relations um, and where I'm using Gramsci's, Antonio Gramsci's work to look at the relationship between the Green Movement and the sanctions regime 
and it's um, looking at the idea of world order from the perspective of some parts of the green movement um, in 2009, 2010 in Iran. I've been told that I cannot use Gramsci in a review because Gramsci is Western and Iran is not Western. Right. I've been told that, you know, why am I trying to publish this as an IR? It's area studies. Why, you know, so mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I've, but I, I actually think, I think mo- a lot of the time, I think of um, my students um, and I think of the environment that my students have grown up in and the majority of IR people, I guess, probably come from very Anglophone, um, you know, backgrounds. And if I want to change the way the discipline, you know, I can't do it on my own, obviously. I think it's very much a collaborative endeavor. Um way sees especially states such as Iran who are always almost well always I don't want to be so um, you know generalizing but often seen as the other because of the creation of the Islamic Republic um, it's really really important to sort of show I this is really a complicated picture and for me the best way I can do that is to just really try and make it part of the IR debate yeah um, and that is by no means to say that other literature is not, you know, important. It is extremely important. Um, and that's been my focus, really. And to when you're told you're not supposed to do it, then I'm sort of like, well. <laughs> you say that, but. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see what I can do about that. <laughs> well, for what it's worth, I think you're doing an amazing job of it. And Thank you. contributing to a, an interesting turn in quote-unquote IR literature that pays closer attention to these debates within what would traditionally have been area studies but in doing that it offers so much to the actual discipline of IR so I mean this is a conversation we could have for hours and hours and yeah uh, go round (laughs) and round round yeah but I'm curious where did Mm -hmm. Gramsci come from because Gramsci is is a, a wonderful thinker, but not necessarily one that you would expect. I'm not saying that you yeah. shouldn't use it, but no. um, yeah. I'm curious, where, well, does, where does he come from, in your work at least? So, um, it's funny because when I was doing my master's, I did a dissertation on counter-hegemony in Iran, um, and I didn't do very well in the in the dissertation, I have to say. But, I was a bit surprised and then I kind of like, you know, put it away and I just thought, oh, well, you know, try better next time. Um, And when I finished, so finished my sort of work associated with my thesis, um, I thought, right, okay, how am I going to get more into the IR debate? And I didn't come from a sort of political theory background. I came from an area studies background. Mm -hmm. Um, well, obviously, political theory comes into it, but I wasn't one of these people. I didn't sort of, you know, have a politics um, degree, so I didn't have that grounding. So it was up to me to sort of work out useful tools. Um, and obviously, I sort of come across um, Gramsci a little bit through discourse theory, because obviously, you know, the, the, the drawing on the idea of hegemony comes from Gramsci and, and Laclau's work. Um, and I read a book on, you know, critical thinkers in IR, and I just found that Gramsci was a really, I just, it made sense to me. 
Um, And I had the fortunate opportunity to be a visiting fellow in the politics of the department in in Exeter. Um, And I read a lot of Gramsci with um, dear friend and colleague Robert Lamb in the politics department. We meet weekly and read Gramsci together. Um, And then I just, yeah, amazing. (laughs) Um, And then it's sort of, I just felt like, okay, this is, it helps me understand what's going on in Iran because of the domestic and the international, the process of revolution, but the process as well after revolution. I've tried to draw on that, you know, Islamic Mm -hmm. Republic as a post-revolutionary situation. Um, And it just, you know, there's constant change and flux and the importance of the role of ideas, but also the difference between hegemony and domination. They just... It just made sense for me. Um, and so, and that was the beginning. And then I had published that piece in Third World Quarterly. And it's just um, continuing to be a really useful set of tools, um, I find, to give you know my interpretation of what we see um, in Iran since the revolution in 1979. Well, I think that's the best reason for using something, that it makes sense and it sheds light on on things that you want to understand better. So, yeah, yeah, makes perfect sense. <laughs> but how dare you break these disciplinary shackles, Shabnam? How I dare know. you? <laughs> so, I mean, before we get to um, Iran in the present, because I'd like to sure. ask you about that, I just want to quickly touch on um, a piece you had published last year. Mm-hmm. With Eddie, uh, towards a yeah. post-imperial and global IR, revisiting Khatami's dialogue among civilizations in the review of international studies. First of all, congratulations. Second, Thank you very it's much. a wonderful piece. I really enjoyed reading it. Uh, Thank you. But tell us a little bit about what it is and what you're trying to do with Eddie there, and what's it about. So um, I think Eddie and I met. Um, at a workshop and we discovered that we were both doing Khatami, our PhDs on Khatami. And what was quite interesting is that we had very different approaches to do looking at Khatami. So um, Eddie was much more interested and focused on, um, you know, Khatami and how that related to foreign policy and international relations and the role of dialogue among civilizations in that. Um, and that's not something I, I really touched on very much in my um, doctoral research. I was more interested in how that reflected in terms of um, Iranian national identity. Um, And then um, over several conferences and workshops, um, Eddie and I had a lot of conversations about how we were both really frustrated. Those frustrations I've already articulated in in the terms of how um, uh, Iran is perceived in in IR debates, specifically IR debates. Um, and while appreciating, you know, the amazing work that already exists on dialogue among civilization, um, we felt that we had an opportunity to to build on that. Um, and so it was a way of showing the complexity, not only in dialogue among civilizations itself, but the environment in which dialogue among civilizations comes about. So we've had so many, you know, so many of our disciplines are based on the West and the other. This kind of bifurcation comes from Eurocentrism and legacy of empire, etc. But Iran's a really interesting case because Iran um, 
you know, obviously it's a, it's a, it's a polity that's existed for a very, very long time, but also it has contemporary Iranian political debate political development draw on both, obviously, the legacy of European colonialism, even though Iran was never actually a direct colony, as they say, um, but also the legacy of um, Islam, but also the legacy of culture and heritage before predating Islam. But also, and I think this is what, you know, so many people can't get their heads around, is that, you know, people in Iran engage with West, what we call Western political theory. And, and Qatami is a prime example of that. So drawing all of that together to show that, you know, these divisions between West and the rest are really problematic. I and mean, of course, everybody, there's a lot, well, not everybody, but there's a lot of debate about that. Um, but we were thought that, you know, Khatami's dialogue among civilizations is a really good example of how that is problematic. Um, and then getting it into the debate in IR on these issues was, you know, our aim. And, and we were so pleased when um, Review of International Studies um, published it. So um, it's really great. <laughs> it is really great as a piece. Yes. I mean, yeah, I know that it was a sense of an achievement, you know. It's like, yeah. <laughs> I know what you meant, but I also had to hammer home that it's a really yeah. great piece. Um, I know that it was a bit of a struggle. It went through lots of reviews in another place, but I think yeah. that that captures the the maybe the conservative nature of some of these siloed disciplines that yeah. remain sort of wedded to their their sort of their silos, their disciplinary silos, and never the two shall meet kind of approach. And yeah, and a little bit of you know reluctance, I think. Um, not, I mean, I, I think to be fair, there was some kind of engagement with the idea, but it just, for one reason or other, um, and we're very pleased with the review of international studies. Um, it was just, I think there's a hesitancy still. I think you're right in a lot of IR, yeah. IR work um, journals. Not just, and also I think political, I mean, I don't publish in political science, but there's also a lot of hesitancy in political science journals about, um, you know, the inclusion of other parts of the world. Other parts of the world are area studies while everybody else, while yes. Europe and the US, for instance, are, you know, politics, sociology, international relations, etc. And we have to kind of, you know, take those boundaries down somehow. We do. Deconstruction and to continue fighting the, the good fight. Yes. Shabnam, we've been talking for a while, but I'm conscious there's one, given the, the time that we're recording this, it yeah. would be remiss not to touch on what's happening. Um, sure. With the increasing tensions across the region, increasing framing of Iran as a nefarious puppet master. Um, I wonder if you can just say a few words about your take on Iran right now and what's happening, please. I think um, I think we have to bear in mind, you know, the, the regional environment. Um, and I think we have to... So uh, we can't look at what's happening in Gaza... Um, without also appreciating the Iran-Israel relations. Um, they have been tense for, obviously, a number of years, and you know many would refer to this as a proxy war. Um, and at various times, it becomes more than 
you know, Cold War, as it were. Um, so I think we have to take that into consideration. And I also think that we have to take into consideration that um, the fact that the Islamic Republic's legitimacy has been challenged by what is now referred to as the woman life freedom movement. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's a combination of looking at how the Islamic Republic, the tools it uses to legitimize itself, both in relation to its internal and external um, audiences. And what it perceives as the axis of resistance is a really important part of that. Um, and, you know, Israel's, um, the Netanyahu's government's stance on the Gaza Strip is, um, you know, fits into the Islamic Republic's narrative about what it sees as U.S. hegemony and what it considers um, as Zionism as an extension of U.S. hegemony. So for, for me, it's, while what we're seeing is really horrific um, and, you know, if it continues to escalate, quite troubling. I don't know um, a way out of it, I, um, but in the many ways, I'm not surprised. I mean, these, these dynamics have been building up. We've been seeing these in various different incarnations over the years. Um, in previous Gaza wars, um, but also in terms of the ongoing relationship between um, Israel and the Islamic Republic. Yeah, hard to disagree with that, sadly. <laughs> Shabnam, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for sharing that, and thank you for for diving deep back into your sort of scholarly past and your intellectual journey. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It has not disappointed one bit. It's been a real pleasure. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's great to be able to do this and um, to um, be able to contribute contribute to SEPAD in this way. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. As ever, huge thank you to you for listening. Till next time. <laughs>